Let's go, pal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 74 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. This is the news. It's been a little while. I think uh, it's come, come to about kind of every two months, it looks like I'm, uh, I'm going to do a news show. That seems, uh, it seems pretty reasonable. And uh, again, I'm not, not going to apologize for this stuff because I always do. The show's late. And uh, on account of that, I don't want these news shows to um, detract, I guess, uh, from the, uh, the schedule. Though a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of life stuff has been happening. I'm having, uh, there's some uh, complications that were going on with some uh, renovations doing with the house, some issues with the car. Unfortunately, my uh, my cat isn't uh, isn't doing very well at the moment, and uh, you know we're uh, we're getting her in and out of the vet, and uh, hopefully all that stuff will be resolved soon. So you know all that stuff aside, you know uh, I I don't want these new shows to detract from the main. You know, main main episodes, the real the real stuff that you guys uh, have come to expect. So I'm gonna change up the format a little. When I originally kind of uh, broke out these news episodes, uh, you know, on account of I think it was the second Patreon goal, um, I just kind of kept doing them in the same way that I do the show. So you know, I'd, I'd gather news stories, I would do some reading about them, some research, write up some notes, talk and. And blah blah blah, and uh, you know, to give you guys a really good idea of what I'm talking about and all this, but uh, but frankly, a lot of you guys are up on the news just as much as I am, if not more. So uh, I decided instead of instead of going really real deep into them, I'm just gonna kind of do a bit of a rundown, maybe give some of my opinion, <laughs> since uh, you know that seems like fun, and uh, you know, make them a little more free flowing. Uh, I've got some some emails from people, some voicemails uh, about uh, mod music. And so those are going to act, especially I got one from Jamie, which is real great. It's uh, like a little a little segment. It's about 12 minutes long. So, uh, you know, I, when when it comes to stuff like that, that's where I'll put these in the news shows. If you guys want to send stuff that's a little bit longer form, uh, either about something we've talked about or something uh, you're interested in that maybe either I glossed over or uh, something you think you can contribute, then, uh, yeah, if you want to do something uh, a little bit longer, then, uh, you know, drop me a line and, and we can throw a spot in it in one of these new shows so uh yeah these are going to be a little a little looser uh <laughs> a little bit less uh data filled shall we say and uh and and we'll go from uh from there so let's get right into the news and we'll do some emails at uh, at the end so first uh, a while back i guess a couple months ago uh the second act of broken age t- uh, <laughs> the second act of broken age 2 no broken age act 2 see i'm already all over the place this is unscripted kids uh, Broken Age Act 2 came out. Um, I played through Broken Age Act 1. I streamed most of it. I should actually go and stream that last little part to complete the set and maybe stream the second part. So I haven't played the second part myself as of yet. And, um, you know, I definitely want to. Uh, and I've, I've heard, frankly, mixed reviews. I know the puzzles in, uh, even from my perspective, uh, the puzzles in in the first act were were pretty straightforward. I always kind of feel with adventure games i i don't play i've said this on other shows i'm even have said it on this show i don't play adventure games for the puzzles i'm not an adventure game puzzle aficionado i don't love these brain teasers and sitting there and figuring it out i play adventure games for the story and because of that and and maybe as uh caused by that i i don't i'm not really great at figuring out puzzles and it never really bothered me to go to a walkthrough and I think for Broken Age Act One, either I had to go through a walkthrough once, or I didn't go through a walk, go to a walkthrough at all. 
So for me to go to a walkthrough as little as that, the puzzles are pretty easy because I have very little patience for stuff like that. Now, I've heard uh, in Act 2 and I've read reviews that uh, the puzzles in Act 2 are a little more complex, uh, some to the point of being maybe a little overcomplicated. But, uh, you know, I really loved Broken Age Act 1. I really loved the art style of it. I really liked the story it was telling. It was a really great uh, Schaefer, Tim Schafer type uh type of a game so I'm, i am going to get to act two and if uh if you guys have thoughts on broken age act two because i'm definitely not going to do a show on it or anything it's uh it's only tangentially related to kind of dawson pre-windows xp gaming because schaefer's involved uh drop me a line hey and uh, and let's hear if uh, you guys have played through and i don't know if this is the end or if there's an act three i was under the impression this was the last one but uh maybe that's not the case so let me know what do you guys think broken age act two all right, next we are talking GOG.com. So a while ago they released the beta, and I think I talked about this also maybe even in the previous news show. Uh, they released the beta of their GOG Galaxy client. Now, basically the beginnings of, of this desktop client are a lot like Steam or EA's uh, origin client. At the moment, it's not doing a lot. I mean, it's really just emulating the functions of, of, of GOG's website. Uh, you know, it allows you to do things like browse the stores through through your, your game library and select games to install. Uh, it's still it's still early days. I think this might be like the second iteration of the beta. Uh, but, you know, as of, as of so far, I'm really liking what I'm seeing with this Galaxy client. Uh, I already had some GOG games installed on my machine. And uh, when you install the client, it does allow you to scan your drive uh, for for already installed GOG games. Uh, I did that, and it found Grim Fandango Remastered, which I had installed, and it also found the 1994 version of TIE Fighter. Um, for some reason, I looked through my, my games directory, and uh, it looked like I had a lot more GOG games installed than that. So I kind of ran it a few times and said, well, you know, what's going on? This isn't working. I poked around. Uh, but... You know, I started actually looking in those old game folders, and it turns out I had actually deleted those games, and all that was left in those folders were old save files and whatever. So, uh, you know, it looks like it worked. <laughs> so again, you know, much like Steam, uh, Gal the Galaxy client allows through you to, to browse through your list of games and uh, select which game to install. If you do choose to install, uh, you know, the, G the Galaxy client will perform a background download. And uh, it'll automatically install the game into whichever kind of folders you've uh, you've set up in uh, in the client settings. Overall, you know, I, I can't complain about this. It, it, it works great. It, it also allows you through the menu to access other goodies that come with the game, like manuals, soundtracks, all that stuff, all that fun stuff that comes with uh, with GOG games. Uh, the only place this sort of falls down, at least last time I checked, because I have I got a little indication this might not be the case anymore. Um. It seems to be that the, the Galaxy client does not uh, support automatic game updates like Steam does. Like, you know, you buy a game in Steam, you leave it installed, and every once in a while it'll wake up, make sure you're, all your games are up to date. If it's not, it'll download and apply the update if you have updates turned on. Uh, and it looks like the Galaxy client doesn't do this yet. You still have to kind of go through your installed games, check, click on them, see if there's an update. If there is, you have to install it. I'm sure... That this will be a feature that's coming out soon, if not already, because I actually had the uh, the client open here on my uh, on my MacBook, and I had installed The Witcher, the original Witcher, 
and uh, I was logged out of it and it was like, and it was advertising to me that, oh, you should log in because it'll track uh, updates. So I don't know if that just means that the client will tell you there's an update for the game and you'll still have to manually install it or if they have actually enabled this uh, background downloading. So, you know, I guess uh, the big question here in this whole uh, game desktop website associated client situation is do we need another one of these things? Do we need another desktop client to manage our games from a single site? Well, your answer, you know, your answer might be no. But honestly, for me, my my answer is yes. Uh, I know a lot of people are in the same boat as me. Between all these sites, you know, Steam, Origin, Green Man Gaming, Humble Bundle, uh, it's it's really hard for me, especially given the recent GOG sale and the recent Steam sale, to keep track of of these ever growing game libraries that we have. I don't even I can't even count. I think last time I checked, I had almost two hundred Steam games. I probably have more now. Uh, you know, at times I forget that I bought a game on Steam or on GOG or via Humble or whatever else. Sometimes it hasn't happened that I've bought a game twice in different places. But, uh, you know, these clients expose my library to me in kind of a very convenient manner. And it exposes them in a much more streamlined way. And they also help me manage what's installed on my machine and and overall just make the process of choosing what I want to play a bit easier. So for me, these clients are actually helpful. And, you know, if there's three or four of them, it would be nice if there was one. I know you can import external games into Steam and all that, but that doesn't really help with automation and updating and stuff like that. So... You know, to me, having things, if not all in one place, at least in, you know, two or three places on my on my machine, as opposed to having to go and check four or five websites or saying, oh, do I have this on disk or blah, 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 blah. It makes my life a little bit easier. I mean, is it perfect? No. The GOG Galaxy client is, is by far not perfect as of yet. And I don't think it'll ever be perfect. I mean, Steam's not perfect. Uh, but it's definitely uh, a step in the right direction from GOG, a site which I use a ton, both for this show and, of course, my my general gaming as well. Next, I don't know why I talk about this a lot, but I, I'm immensely interested in, in kind of VR and head tracking and all this stuff. It doesn't have a lot to do with the show, but uh, hey, it's my show and I'm interested in it, so we're going to talk about it. So lots of Oculus Rift news. I mean, E3 happened. Uh, I guess it was just this last week, so it's gonna be. A, I'm not gonna go in detail through E3 because there's a lot of podcasts that uh, that's what they do, and they do it way better than me. And they're you know actual journalists and they're actual people in the industry, and I'm just some idiot. So I'm gonna talk about Oculus Rift. So they 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 both got a release date and a big reveal. So back on May 5th, this is a while back, uh, we heard that uh, the final consumer version of the Rift would be available in Q1 of 2016, so the first quarter of, of next year. And then if we jump to a few days ago on June 11th, uh, we had an Oculus Step into the Rift event where the company gave us the big reveal, the final consumer version of the headset. So, you know, the Rift is uh, the new Rift. I guess this is, well, I guess final consumer versus, you know, the, we've had two developer kits. This is the one that will actually be sold to humans. Uh, it's made of much higher quality materials. It's got two late, low latency OLED displays. That's organic LED. Uh, these can be adjusted for different intraocular distances. So basically people have different uh, distances between the center of their eyes. And you're going to want to kind of line up those those little screens with uh, with that distance. 
And uh, it's also going to have a set of detachable integrated headphones for kind of full uh, immersion. Of course, uh, the headset will need to be plugged into a pretty decent gaming rig. So, uh, you know, you'll need to both have a good machine and also not mind having a, a kind of a, I guess, a DVI or an HDMI cable uh, draped over your shoulder. Uh, each Rift will also ship with an Xbox One controller when it first releases, which is uh, kind of an interesting little uh, little tidbit. Now, while that news is a little bit disappointing, uh, you know, the Xbox One thing is kind of like, oh, yeah, it's a regular straight-up game controller. That's not very virtual reality. Uh, they didn't actually leave us completely hanging in the controller camp. Now, they, they did show us a prototype of the Oculus Touch controller, which will be releasing also in the first half of 2016, uh, just not right at the same time as the headset. Now, this controller is, uh, well, I guess there's two of them, technically, and they're, they're held in each hand. And uh, they handle both traditional controls via thumbsticks and buttons and triggers and all that noise, in addition to motion, thanks to both internal accelerometers and uh, the camera that comes with the Oculus Rift to help with uh, head positioning. So, I mean, it looks interesting at the very least, though I wonder how work how well it's going to work with games that don't directly support it. I mean, is this going to be... Like, motion is kind of like... You know, I remember I had a Wii. My parents have it now. Uh, but, uh, you know, and that was all the rage. The first, you know, the original Wii came out and everyone's like, motion, this is the future. And, you know, Xbox came out with Kinect and uh, and Sony came out with, uh, what was it? the P Well, there's the PS3i, but those uh, motion, the golf ball controllers, whatever they're called. And, um, you know, for a time, that, that was the thing. Hey, let's play golf. Let's do bowling. Let's go fishing. Let's do all this cool stuff with motion. And now, I guess, lately, it's, it's kind of died down a little bit. Like, I think, I guess I'm, like I said, I'm not going to talk about E3 a lot. But I don't think, because I listened to the, uh, the Microsoft press conference, and they didn't show a picture of the Kinect. They didn't you know, talk about the Kinect. They didn't talk about any features of the Kinect. They didn't talk about any next-gen games that are going to take advantage of the Kinect. I don't think Sony talked much about, you know, their stuff. And, uh, you know, Nintendo, they did kind of their their online stuff, and, and I, I didn't hear that one, so I didn't hear what they talked about. But, you know, the, the Wii U is, is starting to get on, even the Wii U. So... Uh, you know, I don't know if motion's really such a huge a huge thing. So these controllers, well, you're going to need something if you're wearing a headset on your head because obviously you're not going to be able, you know, because for me it was like, oh, we're, I'm going to play Elite Dangerous with this thing on my head and, and blah, blah, blah. But if you don't have something where you can see what you're pushing, like, you know, if you can't use a keyboard. I can't say, oh, I got to go hit L to raise my landing gear. And there's things like I, I, when I play Elite Dangerous, I have... Uh, it's called voice attack, so it's like voice command. So you say, raise landing gear, and it goes, raise landing gear, raising landing gear, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you'll have to do stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll see. <laughs> I, I'm As much as I love technology, I'm, I'm not really good. Maybe I'm not, uh, what's the word, visionary enough to kind of see where things are going and, and see how we could take advantage of these things. But some of it, maybe I'm old. I'm only 34, but maybe I'm old. Uh, you know, I have trouble seeing how these things are going to be leveraged necessarily uh, moving forward. So, I mean, lots of Oculus Rift news. I'm interested to see it. I really do want to buy one. I Off the top of my head, I want to buy one because I, like, I love sim games where you sit in a thing and you drive it and you control it, whether it's a spaceship or a 
you know, a truck across Europe or a racing car or a submarine or, or whatever or a plane and, and flight sim. And I, I do think that those will be cool interfaces. I've head tracking set up for those games as it is with kind of, uh, you know, kind of this hacky setup with a PS3 eye camera and all that. But I do have to try it because, as you may remember from, you know, things like the Wolfenstein episode, uh, I do have a tendency to get a little motion sick. And um, that causes some issues. So I, I am going to want to try a rift out before uh, before I actually plop down some money. I also need to see if my now aging but still useful gaming rig from 2009 is, uh, you know, is beefy enough to run it. All right, so also back in May, uh, we got a little bit of news about uh, a missed TV series. And now, apparently, this is coming to Hulu. Uh, Legendary Television, which I assume is the TV arm of Legendary Pictures. I might be wrong about that. Industry, uh, TV, movie industry people, let me know. Uh, they Legendary Television got the rights to the series last fall, and uh, they brought in some top-notch writers and producers to create things. So uh, the overview of this, uh, of this series is that we're going to delve not into kind of the time where we've played the games or read the, maybe the books, I haven't read all the books, but, you know, kind of, we're, we're going to delve back into the past, into the origins of the island, maybe grabbing inspiration from some novels. Uh, you know, people people are joking, you know, it's missed. What are we going to do? Are we going to be watching a show with, like, no characters and uh, just some crappy videos and, and weird puzzles? But, uh, you know, I suspect this is a pretty rich world if you go back. Well, first of all, if you read all the books from in the actual game, we have a pretty rich world here. And, uh, you know, if you read the novels that came out, uh, which I pretty you can get on Kindle, which, uh, you know, when I have a bit more reading time when I'm not reading stuff for uh, for my Star Wars show, I may go back because, yeah, I definitely read the first one, which was interesting, but uh, I wasn't too intimate at that point, so I didn't quite get it. But uh, yeah, let's see. Let's see what's going on. Hopefully it'll be uh, free Hulu, not Hulu Plus. And uh, I still don't think we can get Hulu in Canada, which is irritating. But, uh, you know, I got ways. So uh, interested to see how this turns out. All right, more GOG news here. Uh, Since we last spoke, on top of all the great Star Wars stuff that came out on GOG, GOG has also released... Uh, Star Trek games. Now, this includes uh, some games I've already covered, like Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights, and also newer games like Starfleet Command, Starfleet Academy. I think there's the Klingon Academy is on there as well. Uh, you know, I'm very glad these games are getting some exposure. It seems, at least in, from my perspective, being that I'm a little bit you know steeped in that universe, uh, we've been all over Star Wars these days with the new Star Wars movies and all these new Star Wars books and new Star Wars comics and, you know, Clone Wars ending and Rebels starting. Rebels season two, you know, uh, released yesterday, uh, its first episode, which I still have to watch. But, uh, you know, Star Trek has also had a long, interesting, and uh, much like Star Wars, somewhat checkered, maybe more checkered, uh, gaming history. And uh, there's a lot more Trek games I'd like to see, including uh, the the TNG. This one might be difficult, actually. The uh, the next generation game, uh, there was an adventure game called The Final Unity, which I do want to cover for this show. I believe it was actually by Spectrum Holobyte. So uh, I'm not sure if Interplay actually owns the rights to that. And I think that's how they're getting all of these. But uh, if they can, and I know it's, I think it's a Windows 95 game. So it's basically like complete and utter hell to get running on a modern machine. 
So uh, yeah, Trek games on GOG. Check them out. I'll, I'll be covering more of them, uh, more of them pretty soon. All right, next, uh, we've got some Kickstarter information. Now, I haven't talked about Hero U, uh, the Kickstarter project from Lori and Corey Cole uh, for a long time. Lori and Corey Cole, of course, are the creators of Sierra's Quest for Glory series, which is another one that's on my uh, my short list to cover. Well, about a month ago, so, th- you know, the, the project funded, all that noise, and, you know, we were getting a certain kind of game. Uh, and about a month ago, they launched a new Kickstarter. I was kind of like, huh? going on here i mean this this game funded i've been hearing about it for like two years but uh they decided to launch a new kickstarter to raise an additional one hundred thousand dollars in funding to uh to finish off the game now why is this well it turns out that uh hero U has morphed into a much bigger and more ambitious project than uh the team had originally intended so they needed a bit more money and time to finish it off now initially i was very skeptical about this approach i was kind of like Dudes, I gave you money. You were going to deliver a thing. Now you're asking me for more money and you haven't delivered the thing. So I'm kind of, meh. But of course, uh, you know, I went to the campaign page anyways. And uh, I checked out what they were, you know, what they were selling. And, uh, you know, it turns out what we're getting is a much more deep and interesting game here than they had originally talked about in their their first Kickstarter. And, uh, you know, regardless of what you thought about it. Uh, the second campaign hit its $100,000 goal and exceeded it by another 16000 So, you know, let's hope this additional boost gives them the resources they need to get us a great combat RPG adventure. Because that's not really what, uh, you know, what we were told we were getting at the beginning. But uh, that turns out to be what people who, you know, loved Quest for Glory, what they really want. So let's roll with it. So we've also heard recently, back on uh, June 9th, that uh, a Master of Orion reboot is coming from the team behind World of Tanks, whose uh, name, I believe, is is Wargaming. Uh, so Wargaming got their hands on the Master of Orion uh, IP, I guess, in, in 2013 during that big Atari bankruptcy option. And I think I may have even talked about this in the past because it does, it does ring a bell. And, uh, you know, they, they got their hands on it, and we were kind of like, okay, well, whatever, we'll wait till we hear. And um, so now they said, hey, we're making a new, uh, a new turn-based strategy game, kind of a, you know, 4X, kind of, because Master of Orion was one of the original 4X games, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get the first game uh, in the series since uh, Master of Orion 3, which came out in 2003. Now, uh, Master of Orion 3... Not the greatest game. Uh, we are being led to believe that this is more of a, a reboot of the original, uh, or at least the first two games, and they're kind of dropping uh, the the changes to to the gameplay, which I think I think Master of Orion three made it uh, the game a bit more of an RTS instead of a four X strategy game. So uh, you know we're getting away from that, and um, again people are sort of. A little bit skeptical here because wargaming has a little bit of a checkered history shall we say of being a little bit inconsistent but uh you know why not i mean we're, we're rebooting a whole bunch of other stuff so why not give master of orion a try as well i know a lot of purists are like you know with with many things leave my game alone blah 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 you know let my childhood be my childhood but uh you know i think uh 
a lot of remakes, remasters, like we talked about in uh, in the last Hangout, of which we're going to have to have another one pretty soon. But, you know, in that last Hangout, we did talk about some, some good remakes, some good reboots, some good remasters where... You know, you take the core gameplay, because a lot of these, you know, Master of Orion type games, basically every Space 4X game is basically a copy of Master of Orion. So why can't Master of Orion be a copy of itself? So we'll keep an eye on this stuff. And, uh, you know, this is <laughs> I'm sure there's going to there's going to continue to be skepticism and controversy around this game until we uh, until we hear more. All right, what do we got next? Let me flip back here. I'm flipping back and forth on on my iPad here. It's because, like I said, I'm trying to do this a little more on the fly. And unfortunately, my iPad isn't very fast. (laughs) Definitely need a new iPad. All right. So now I guess uh, we could get that. Most of that stuff was pretty pre-E3, except uh, even the Oculus Rift stuff wasn't really E3. So uh, as I said, not going to go into a ton, but uh, you know, since E3 just ended, there's a ton of news came out regarding a ton of games, uh, and some of which you know we we actually do uh, do care about it. But uh, I'm going to hit a couple of things that that, that jumped out at me. So uh, first thing is uh, the announcement of XCOM 2. So uh, this is a sequel to uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown and the expansion Enemy Within that came out a few years ago. And, uh, you know, as, as this article said, it looks like, unfortunately, XCOM 2, a uh, little bit of bad news for humanity in, uh, in this one. So uh, this game takes place after uh, the recent game, and it puts us on Earth, and it looks like, unfortunately, uh, whatever we did in the first game didn't take, and uh, the aliens are kind of ruling uh, <laughs> ruling the world and yeah so it kind of looks like this kind of quasi 1984 oppressive pseudo you know soviet block kind of uh blade not blade runnerish well, maybe a little blade runnerish kind of uh universe where uh you know humans are ostensibly running the planet but really it's the aliens that are in charge and uh you know you do everything to serve the aliens and the aliens are our friends and blah blah blah, and uh, you know, from what I could gather from uh, you know the little bit of cinematic that they showed, I don't think they showed any gameplay. But uh, it looks like XCOM is still around, but they're more of an underground kind of resistance type organization that are uh, you know trying to uh, subvert the alien masters, you know, using explosions and violence. It actually gave me a little bit of a syndicate kind of vibe because I really did feel like that kind of syndicate type world. And uh, but instead of being, you know, rival corporations, you're this this little guerrilla type group that is the remains of uh, of XCOM. And, you know, even the uh, (laughs) the uh, the narrator guy from the council was there and he's like, welcome back, Commander. So it looks cool. It looks like they're enhancing things. It looks like there's going to be uh, melee combat. The guy, you know, one of the guys in the uh, in the cinematic took out this pretty wicked sword and he sliced a it was like a sectoid or something in half. And uh, yeah, it looks pretty cool. Uh, I mean, XCOM. I'm actually watching uh, my friend James Yagavos uh, on his uh, his podcast and his YouTube channel called uh, Initiative Check. He's been doing a really cool uh, XCOM Enemy Within replay, and it's really making me want to play the game again. I, I've played through it. I didn't finish it the first time, but uh, I did two separate kind of uh, playthroughs of the game, 
And I really do think I want to do a third. It's basically, I think X, the new XCOM or the new <laughs> XCOM before this XCOM 2 is one of my top games of, of recent memory. So uh, I'm probably going to go back and, uh, and give it a whirl. Next, uh, from E3, Bethesda Software had, or Bethesda Softworks, or I can't remember if they're software or softworks. Anyways, Bethesda, who we all know and love, perhaps. Uh, they had their own kind of big uh, keynote-type presentation, and the big reveal in that one was something we'd all been waiting for, Fallout 4. So uh, Fallout 4... We got some some good views here, and uh, it seems like this time we're moving over into kind of uh, the East Coast, and uh, it's going to take place in Boston. And not only that, but it also looks like uh, the game is going to take place partially before uh, the big kind of nuclear holocaust that forced everyone into into the vaults, and partially after. So, uh, you know, this is a first for Fallout games. This is, I'm sure, going to be equally huge and equally kind of somewhat humorous and interesting as a Fallout game is. Uh, you know, the, the landscapes look a lot more colorful. People are complaining that the graphics look old. I mean, this is an enhanced version of uh, of the same engine that the previous games, uh, Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas, ran on. People are like, oh, it's not next-gen enough, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, Fallout is massive, like pretty open-world kind of combat RPG. So, uh, you know, I guess they could it could be GTA 5 looking, but that's not Fallout. That's not what it's supposed to be. So, and uh, <laughs> the dog from uh, Fallout 1, I believe, Dog Meat, he's, uh, or is that from Fallout 3? Anyways, from one of the older Fallout games, he, he looks like he's, he becomes your companion pretty early on in the game and uh you have a robot butler and and all that and it, it does look really 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 cool and uh i'm very excited i think i can't remember if they didn't did they announce a release date it may if they did it might be november i know you can already technically pre-order it on steam but uh you know you can check that out for yourself like i said a lot of other people are doing a lot more detailed e3 coverage but i was super excited i'm a big fallout fan this is obviously related to stuff uh that i talk about in the show because fallout is is now a nice long-running series that has its root back in the roots back in the dos days and as an extension to that uh they also released a mobile game for unfortunately right now for ios only called fallout shelter and uh fallout shelter is freaking awesome where's my phone i'm gonna turn this thing on because it is freaking hilarious. So basically, the goal, the point of Fallout Shelter is... Um, I guess this is not really super related to Fallout 4. Let's see here. Oh, there it goes. So the point of Fallout Shelter is uh, you are the overseer of a vault. Now, because my Twitter handle is BillyBob476, I am the overseer of Vault 476. And... Uh, Basically what you do, it's kind of like a little management type tiny tower kind of game. Here, let me gather up all my stuff here. Ah! That's not right. There we go. Alright, so yeah, so that's it's kind of a management game. So you start off with a, a very small, you have a vault door, which uh, is inside of a mountain. And... Uh, Basically, your job is to manage the vault and manage your vault dwellers and attract new vault dwellers from the wasteland to kind of come and, and live in your vault. All right, let's turn that off now. It's getting a little annoying. 
Uh, so to do that, you do like you do in all these little management games. You build you build different rooms. So, you know, you need uh, power generating rooms to generate power to run all the rooms in your vault. You need water treatment facilities to, <laughs> much like in Fallout 1, you need a, a water water treatment chip or whatever to, uh, to make sure that you guys all have water to drink. Uh, you need living quarters for people to live in. The more living quarters you have, the more vault dwellers your vault can hold. Uh, f- uh, cafeterias and restaurants and cafes and stuff to, for people to eat. And then, uh, you know, the game continues to build out as your vault gains more more dwellers. You unlock additional rooms, things that can train up. So, yeah, each of your vault dwellers, uh, they're all little the little vault pit boy, vault boy dudes from uh, from Fallout. You know, little males and females all wearing the little vault jumpsuits. And uh, they all have a series of stats. And uh, the stats are the special stats, which you find in every Fallout game. You know, strength, perception, endurance, luck, etc. Agility. Etc. And um, you know, each of the different rooms in the game require or take advantage of a different stat of each of your vault dwellers. So your goal is realistically to uh, take each of your vault dwellers and, much like Tiny Tower, or Tiny Death Star, or whatever, uh, is to take them and put them in a job that best suits their uh, their dominant uh, stats. And if you do that, and if you keep them healthy, and if you uh, you know, stop the vault from catching on fire and stop people from dying, then, uh, you know, your vault will be happy. And if your vault is not happy or people will get sick, they'll become unhappy, they'll die, and, uh, you know, things like that. And and there's all kinds of little great nods to Fallout. So you can actually take one of your dwellers and you can send them out into the wasteland and they can go explore the wasteland. And as they explore, you should arm them and give them armor. And as they go and explore the wasteland, they will fight you know, and, and it's great because you, you put them out, they run off, and you don't actually see them in the wasteland. You just kind of get a report. So it'll kind of say, oh, I'm out exploring the wasteland. Maybe I should turn here. Oh, here's an old hospital. Let me go check it out. I found a med pack in the hospital or a stim pack in the hospital. I also found this doctor uniform. And it goes into his inventory and there's weapons and costumes that you can give to each of your dwellers. And as he goes across, he'll come across things like, uh, you know, fire ant workers and and scavengers and dogs and mercenaries and and your little vault dude that's exploring the wasteland will either decide it's it's all ai quote-unquote ai uh and again based on his stats they'll either attack them or evade and you know hopefully not die and you have to equip them with stim packs and right away because they'll get irradiated and uh you know as they go out they'll gather items and then you can recall them and they'll come back to uh to your vault and all this time they've been away they go away in real time they can go away for like you know hours and, uh, you know, if they die, you can pay money and revive them and, uh, and they can come back and bring you all the stuff they've gathered. And, uh, you know, you can equip your, your vault dwellers with different costumes, with different weapons, and they need the weapons because your vault will also occasionally be attacked by raiders and, uh, the raiders will come, they'll blow down your vault door and, uh, you'll have to defend. So if you kind of put some people in, in good gear, with good weapons near the door, they'll attack, and the raiders usually are armed with, at least at the point of the game I'm at, will be armed with either swords or uh, small, small, you know, handguns or whatever. And, you know, I got people with laser pistols and, and assault rifles and stuff there, and they take them down. And, uh, yeah, and also, I mean, there's just, <laughs> it's such a little dumb game, 
But there's so many little things. And another way, aside from having people just randomly wander into your vault, is if you take a male and a female uh, vault dweller and you stick them in living quarters, eventually they will uh, like each other and they'll run into the back and uh, the female will come out and she'll be pregnant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after a bit of time passes, she will give birth and uh, you'll have a new child vault dweller. And children don't really do anything in the in the vault aside from take up... Uh, resources until they grow up and then they can become a contributing member of, uh, of vault society. So, you know, all that, you can have a radio station and if you put charismatic vault dwellers in the radio station, they'll transmit out. And that has a chance also of attracting additional vault dwellers. Uh, it's just a really cool game. And yeah, you have to build elevators to go down deeper into the rock. And apparently the, the, the vault tops out once you get 200 dwellers, I have about 40 right now. And it's just a really cool little mobile game. So if you have an iOS device, apparently there is an Android version coming. They say it's going to come out in the next few months. And, you know, this is all official. It's from Bethesda. Uh, you know, it's got all the right sound effects. It's got all the right skins. It's got all the right armor. It's got all the right monsters. It's got a, all the right gear. It, it's just it's 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 just such a fun little thing. So I, I can't recommend Fallout Shelter uh, strongly enough. So, yeah, if you have an iPhone, if you have an iPad... Go check it out. It's it's free on the App Store. Uh, like any game, you can buy little upgrades. It's it's not like things do take time, but it's not uh, one of those. Oh, this upgrade's going to take six hours. Buy more stars. It's uh, basically you have all these little objectives. I'm really going on about this game, aren't I? Anyways, it's fun. Uh, you have all these little objectives, sideline objectives, like collect 500 water or you know give birth to 10 babies or or whatever, and the rewards from those tasks are either credits that you can use to, you know, buy and upgrade rooms or uh, these lunch boxes. And uh, if you open the lunch boxes, lunch boxes contain cards and you get four cards per lunch box. And each box, I believe, is uh, guaranteed to contain at least one rare card. And these cards will either give you things like uh, more energy, more food, more water, more money. But they'll also give you gear. You might win some some guns. You might get some different costumes. And you might also get uh, unique uh, dwellers that have kind of boosted stats. And you can and the whole point of the game is in addition to gathering up your, you know, making your vault as good as it can be, is also to gather all the different costumes, all the different weapons, and all the different unique dwellers. So you know, it's kind of a little collection questy type uh, type thing. But it's it's just so addictive. Like they figured out how to make it fun, how to make it one of those things that you just keep wanting to go back to. So yeah, tons of fun, Fallout Shelter, uh, pick it up. All right, so finally, last thing I'm gonna talk about, there's a couple of other things in here, but uh, we're getting on in time. Uh, the next chapter of uh, King's Quest that I've been talking about for, for quite a while now and following pretty closely from The Odd Gentleman, kind of the what I consider to be kind of the flagship title of, uh, of this new Sierra that uh, Activision has put out. Well, it's coming out next month. I had no idea. For some reason, I thought this game was still a while off. But uh, yeah, New King's Quest is coming out in early July, I believe, if my iPad will load this page. Anyways, yeah, so the game is coming out next month on PS4, PS3, Xbox One, Xbox 360, and PC. And it will be called King's Quest A Night to remember, sorry, it's coming out in late July, not in early July. Uh, so, you know, as 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 we've talked about, this is the reimagining of the classic adventure series uh, King's Quest with uh, King Graham sitting there as an old man, 
and he's uh, you know telling his his young children, either his children or I think his grandchildren, about his uh, his adventures in in Daventry. So uh, really looking forward to it. Again, the art style looks really great. It looks uh, a little bit actiony, so I don't think it's going to be like a complete and pure adventure game. But uh, hey, we only have one month to go to figure out uh, to figure out what it's going to be all about. So I am super excited. All right, so uh, let's get on to the emails. We've got two voicemails uh, this time around. Uh, there's a couple more for the next episode, but I'm going to save those for the actual next episode, so they're relevant. So these two are going to be uh, related more to uh, the last episode on Crusader and uh, specifically about mod music because, like I said in that episode, I don't know a damn thing about it. So first we got a shorter one from uh, from my good friend Brian, who is the host of the uh, the Square Waves FM podcast. So take it away, Brian. Yo, Joe, and hello, Blockers. This is Brian calling. I uh, never played the Crusader games myself, but I mentioned on Twitter enjoying the soundtracks by uh, the musician named Andrew Sega, also known as Necros. And so uh, Joe encouraged me to just say a few words about it uh, in time for the news episode, so I shall do so. Um, I've always been a great, great big fan of Andrew Sega ever since he produced music in the demo scene mod tracking days. And for those who are not familiar with mod music, that's essentially a free open source uh, format for publishing your music so that uh, anyone is free to not only play your music, but also to open up the songs themselves in the original software that the songs are created with and you can see the musician's technique and also uh, borrow all of their uh, samples to uh, make your own music with. So Necros, uh, he was uh, just a a really unique uh, producer, a really unique composer. He had this very characteristic sound that was kind of happy but sad and like futuristic but still nostalgic. He had these really terrific strong melodies and chord structures and they really evoked emotions from you. Um, I'm familiar with the uh, Crusader soundtracks, although they're not my favorites by this uh, artist. They're a little bit more aggressive than his usual stuff, which is more thoughtful and uh, easygoing for the most part. I highly recommend checking out uh, some of Necros's uh, uh, S3M and mod soundtracks uh, back from the mid-90s when he was doing the free open source stuff. I think my favorite production of his is a music disc, which is just kind of like an album known as Progressions. So, uh, Andrew Sega has also done a bunch of other game soundtracks as well. He did Wing Commander Prophecy, he did Unreal, part of it anyway, and uh, I believe he did the entire soundtrack for Freelancer, which was kind of an unofficial other Wing Commander game as well. Um, Since those days of doing the free open source music, he kind of went on to join some live bands. And I thought to myself, oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to see what this guy will do when he's like a full-time professional musician. And uh, what little I've heard of that stuff, I didn't really dig. Mostly, I guess, because he uh, his bands have a vocalist. And generally with video game music and with uh, completely melodic music without a vocalist, it's the uh, job of the composer to make the music more interesting and more intricate and keep your attention just to make up for that lack of a vocalist. And so because he's compensating for a vocalist, it means that his compositions were a little bit less ornate and intricate and interesting to me. I'll really have to give them another try. Now that I'm on Spotify, I'll, I'll look them up and 
give their albums a proper listen, but I kind of hesitated to buy anything just because of what I heard on YouTube. But uh, I'll give them a try. All right, love the podcast. Thank you so much as always, Joe, and uh, all the best. So long. Well, thank you, Brian. That's 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 great to hear. Great information, because yeah, like I said, not much information out of me on on mod music and the demo scene, and all that. Oh, next we got a little segment uh, about from Jamie again about uh, about the demo scene and mod music and uh, and more. So take it away, Jamie. Hey, Joe. It's Jamie from Australia here. Uh, I was going to write in for the Crusader show and talk about the music because uh, the No Remorse soundtrack is still in my regular listening list. It's one of my favorites. But I knew you would cover it, and you certainly did, uh, so you didn't disappoint there. Um, you talked about um, the mod music and demo scene music in general, so I wanted to elaborate on that a bit. Um, there are a few other games with demo scene music. Uh, one of my favorites is One Must Fall 2097. That's a fighting game like Street Fighter. Uh, the music for that was made by a guy called CC Catch from the demo group Renaissance. Uh, his real name's Kenny Chow. Um, he popped up on YouTube in like 2011 and uh, decided to Google his, uh, or his search for his old game um, out of nostalgia and found there's a huge following and, and you know fan club for it. Um, so he remade it in a, a digital audio workstation. That was really cool to see. I'll, uh, I'll throw a link for that for the show notes. Uh, you also talked about how you didn't know a great deal about the demo scene, um, so I thought I would uh, write in and give you a little overview. Um, I'd never been part of the demo scene, but I have followed it from time to time and I kind of understand what they do, so I hope this is helpful. Uh, the demo scene is a, a subculture of computing fans, so much like we uh, are all fans of retro gaming, um, these dudes are, are into their thing. Um, they focus on um, art, both graphics and sound, and uh, extreme programming skill. That's a big part of the demo scene as well. Um, the demo scene, I guess, kind of got started in the early like 8-bit programmable computer era, so things like the Apple, the Commodore 64, ZX Spectrum. Um, these guys would uh, pirate software, so you know they'd uh, remove copy protection. So if there was some sort of check that uh, you know needed the original factory disk to run, so you couldn't make a copy for your friends, they would remove the check. So then you can you know copy the game for your friends, and you can all get a copy for free. Um, they also might do something like if there was a uh, you know what page of the manual does this picture appear on? You know they'd get an answer. Um, you know, the game would get an answer from you, compare the answer to the real thing, and um, it might jump to an exit if you got it wrong or continue executing if you got it right. So they would just remove that jump, and you know, so regardless of what answer you put in, the, the game proceeds and the copy protection is broken. Um, usually, Guys would add a, a little, like, brought to you by screen, you know, taking credit uh, onto the start of their programs. Um, and this might include, like, uh, their name, their, their demo group, if they were in a group. Maybe a BBS phone number where you could find them and download other things they've cracked. Uh, they might also include greets, uh, with a Z, G-R-E-E-T-Z, um, to other demo sceners they liked or, or wanted to call out. And um, the aim of these was to show you were elite. That was the, the big thing to be elite. Um, by showing off your skill in, in cracking games and, and other software, and uh, not to be lame, and they, not to be a lamer by stealing or, or ripping other people's stuff off and passing it off as your own, or doing really lame tricks, uh, not knowing what you were on about, and maybe releasing something which didn't work. 
Um, so these guys would use a bit of free space they had at the start of programs um, or, or left over on a disk to add in uh, their, their brought to you by, their greets. Uh, they might also throw in over time some colors, some character art like ASCII or ANSI art or whatever um, the, the platform supported. Uh, over time, they started to include maybe some like non-moving pixel art, so there'd be like a cool picture before your your program launched. And um, over time, this developed into like moving pictures as well, you know, animations or something like that. Um, and they would also include sound. So uh, in the early days, they'd include or they'd use a a built-in chip, like the Commodore 64 had a, a SID ch chip. Uh, the ZX Spectrum had a, an AY Yamaha, I think, sound chip. Um, and guys would make music specifically for these, which gives those systems their, their really unique sound. Um, on the things like the Amiga and the MS-DOS PC, um, mod music would be more popular. Um, because it sounded good and, and didn't use up much space. So these were called crack intros or crack tros or maybe just intros. And, um, you know, the, the scene got its roots in software piracy. Uh, as the 90s progressed, um, the authorities started to look into this because software piracy is illegal. And so <laughs> maybe because of this and, and maybe just to extend skill, the demo scene tended to move away from software piracy to just releasing the actual intro or, or the, the skilled part of the, the programming, um, the art part separately. And they were called demos or productions or maybe prods for short. Um, there were parties where people would gather and, uh, you know, swap floppy disks or, and, you know, copy pirated software to each other. And the police also started cracking down on these over time. So these kind of morphed into what are now called demo parties where groups will prepare demos, you know, that are technically impressive and they'll compete for a prize to, to have the best demo in, in a number of certain categories. Um, so in the early days, it was kind of just about showing off, but um, over time, people started really pushing the limits of what the hardware can do. So there was some skill in doing maybe fast parallax scrolling, you know, like early platform games couldn't do scrolling but Commander Keen could do scrolling and that was that was a big technical advancement so doing something like that you know, these smooth animations that was that was good that was elite um, putting many sprites on the screen at once that takes a lot of programming effort or a lot of computation effort anyway so it was good to have a lot of smooth moving sprites um, doing 3D effects like maybe a, a ball um, a, a bouncing ball was popular that was an early Amiga demo that people would often include as like a you know bit of a meme um, a 3D spinning cube that was also quite popular uh, displaying lots of colors was also popular and just generally making things look cool so you know you you had a computer you knew what was on the computer because you had all the rest of your software but you load up this demo and you go wow how do they do that and it, it looks much cooler than anything else you have that was the aim um, as hardware became standardized, you know, all these little 8-bit computers kind of went away and people just started using MS-DOS machines or, or the, the PC. Um, guys started um, pushing the limits of, of the hardware and also um, including artificial limits on what they could do. So maybe they might, you know, try and, and keep their binary within a certain small size, like maybe 4K or, or 16K or something like that. And they might have had to do that in the past, you know, because if they're trying to fit something on a floppy, they might have had to just use the little bit that was left over after the program was written. But um, as 
computers got more powerful, guys started imposing artificial limits on them. And so now there's demo categories like best 4K demo. You know, that'll be something that people try and, and achieve the best possible uh, impressive demo they can in, in 4K. Um, as computers became really powerful, you know, we moved into 3D accelerators and windows and that sort of thing. There's been two kind of major movements in the demo scene. Um, one, one group keeps focusing on the old systems and trying to eke out new tricks and new technically impressive things on, uh, on the older systems. And, and they're still going, they're still finding new things even today. And uh, the other group embraces new tech um, and, and uses things like um, DirectX and, and really impressive 3D graphics, but still maybe within a, a small file size or something like that. Um, and they can do that with maybe procedural content generation, so where like a math function runs and it generates a texture. And so, uh, you know, because a, a, a picture is just a bunch of bits, so if you can make a, a mathematical equation generate those bits you've got a texture. Uh, they also might use some cool compression techniques as well um, to make their file size very small. Um, what are some demos people can see? Um, a, a famous DOS demo is Second Reality by Future Crew. Uh, this includes many many different types of technically impressive things. Um, I'll include some links to that. It, it's probably the most well-known DOS demo, I, I guess. Um, some guys got it on YouTube in everything up to 2K or 4K graphics, so you can watch it without setting up DOSBox, but it will run in DOSBox as well. That's pretty cool. Uh, it's also been open-sourced um, in 2013. Um, FutureQ released all the assembler source that they, they wrote, and so you can see how it's made. Uh, a popular modern um, demo group is called Farb Rausch, I think. Um, and they released a demo in about 2000 called The Product and this was a file size of 64k but it generates this amazing like textured 3D graphics like moving it looked like a, a modern you know first person game but uh, it, it was just this tiny little 64k binary um, a couple of years later they released a, a game called Krieger um, which is K-K-R-E-I-G-E-R. -E -E and that's a 96K binary, but it's a first-person shooter. And it's like of the level of like maybe Quake 2, Quake 3, that sort of thing. Um, so it's, that's pretty cool. I'll, I'll throw links to all this stuff um, for Joe to put in the show notes. Um, a very recent demo which came out um, this year, 2015, uh, is called 8088 miles per hour. This is a demo made for the, the original like IBM personal computer that came out in like 1981 or whatever. So it's like CGA graphics, 4.77 megahertz, like an XT processor if you, you had one of them. I did. Um, and this thing is mind-blowing. It does all this like a thousand colors out of the four color um, CGA graphics adapter and it just it just looks brilliant it's incredible um, it uses a lot of hardware tricks so it won't run um, correctly on you know DOSBox or, or DOSMU or, or anything like that but it will run correctly on uh, on real hardware so I'll include links to all this stuff as well 
Um, one thing I used to think uh, back in the day was like, if these guys are so good at making this software, why don't they make games? Well, turns out a few of them did. Um, Zone 66, which is a uh, like a vertical scrolling shmup, um, that was made by the Renaissance demo group. Um, you know who Kenny was in that, who we talked about earlier, and um, that used some really cool tricks to get a really high game speed on on really early processors. So that would that was like a very technically impressive game. You know, like Raptor. Call the shadows or something like that, but it would run at full speed on like a 386-16 megahertz, which was quite impressive at the time. Um, and a lot of gaming companies uh, have demo scene dudes as programmers. So uh, guys like Insignosis, they had a, a fair amount of demo scene guys. DMA Design, who later became Rockstar, who made Grand Theft Auto, a lot of those guys started out in the demo scene as well. Um, so you. You've been playing demo scene games your whole life, probably. You just didn't know it. <laughs> okay, well, um, I hope that's useful. Um, thanks again for the podcast. And um, big shout-out to Emily for uh, recording her June playthrough. I've been speedrunning that like mad lately. Um, I hope this was helpful, and uh, thank you very much. Cheers. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. That was awesome. And, uh, hey, I- I'm learning stuff just as much. I was I was listening intently just like you guys were right there. It was it was really great. And I do have to thank uh, Emily slash Elima, who, you know, friend of the show, who who writes in often. Uh, she did do a, a cool uh, speed run of Dune, uh, the original one, the, uh, what's it called? Cryo. Yeah, the Cryo uh, Dune, not Dune 2. Uh, and, and yeah, she uh, she's pretty good at getting through the game in, in a very small amount of time. So that was really cool. Maybe I'll put a link there to that as well. Uh, okay, yeah. So, uh, so that's basically it. The only thing I want to uh, to talk about before we head out is uh, I was a little slow doing it because, like I said, there's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, the giveaway for June, because all the Steam Steam sale stuff is going on and blah blah blah, I was able to pick up a copy of uh, Fallout New Vegas Ultimate Edition. So that's Fallout New Vegas and a whole bunch of DLC. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be giving that away in honor of uh, of the release of Fallout Four. So if you don't have Fallout New Vegas. I actually realized I didn't have it on PC. I only had it on 360 with like, you know, no no DLC at all. So uh, I picked up a copy for myself too. But I'm going to give away a copy to you guys. As always, just send me an email at uh, podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line New Vegas Giveaway. And I will pick one lucky winner to send uh, to send this to through Steam. So you're going to have to have a Steam account uh, by the end of the month. So great. Uh, next time... Like I promised in the, the Crusader show, we are going to be covering Star Wars Rebellion, one of uh, a game that I have a lot of cool memories about. I've been playing it uh, quite a bit. Haven't streamed any of it, though. Maybe it's not the most exciting game to stream. Frankly, it's a little slow moving. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking Rebellion next time, and uh, that should do it. Thanks as always to everyone for listening. Thanks to Rick Moyer for all his audio work. I uh, hope you guys like this uh, slightly looser <laughs> kind of news show. That way I can get these out. Maybe I'll do them even more often this way because I can just kind of bang them out without a whole bunch of uh, of prep work. So uh, that's that, as always, and I will see you next time for Rebellion here in the Upper Memory Block. Oh, my God.
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.